Previously on This American Life. No income, no asset loans. That's a liar's loan. You are, we are telling you to lie to us effectively. I wouldn't have loaned me the money and um, nobody that I know would have loaned me the money. This is where we have to talk about Alan Greenspan, right? Yeah, we have to. The balance sheet of these banks is, as far as we know, a huge lie. Over the last year, we've brought you many stories explaining exactly how the economy collapsed. We've heard about mortgage-backed securities and derivatives and bank balance sheets. And today, looking for a little ray of hope about our country's economic plight, we turn to the past. He was an amazing courtroom lawyer. He was relentless. He would not allow witnesses to duck and dodge. He had a nearly photographic memory. His staff would marvel that he would read a briefing memo once and, you know, he would remember every name, every fact, every figure. This is Michael Perino, a law professor who's writing a book about Ferdinand Pecora. Pecora was the lead attorney in the hearings of the Senate Banking Committee back in the 1930s. And when Pecora got that job, he turned the hearings from an unimportant and not terribly useful exercise into a real investigation of Wall Street and the causes of the 1929 stock market collapse and the Great Depression. Pecora was a former district attorney, and he did this very, very well. He created outrage. And it was that anger and that frustration at Wall Street that created the political environment in which Congress had to pass the first federal securities legislation, had to pass new banking regulation, had to create the FDIC and federal insurance for bank deposits. Um, Even Roosevelt, to a direct causal line between the wrongdoing that Pecora uncovered and his ability to push through legislation in that first 100 days of his administration, passage of so much legislation so quickly. Did they go into the hearings looking for bad guys, or did they go into the hearings looking to come up with an analysis of here's what went wrong and here's what we've got to fix and and to to have a kind of a a teaching moment for the country? It's a good question. Pecora described his job as trying to make what was going on in Wall Street, a very complex and arcane transactions, he wanted to make them into common sense, to take these very complex transactions and really turn them into very simple morality tales uh, of right and wrong. One of the famous morality tales from the hearings, Bakura put Charles Mitchell into the witness chair. Mitchell was the head of National Citibank, uh, which is an institution that we know today just as Citibank. And Bakura asked him about some bonds that his bank sold, bonds that had been issued by Latin American countries. The bank's own internal documents showed that the bank thought that maybe these bonds were no good. Their internal memos all said, these securities present huge risks. There's great possibilities that these things are never going to get repaid. And National City never told any of that stuff to the investors. And when Pecora asked Mitchell about it, he seemed surprised. He said, why would the investors want to know anything about that? And that led directly to the passage of the first federal securities laws, the Securities Act of 1933, which required exactly that kind of disclosure when when securities are sold to the public. Now, there was also like a a show trial aspect to this, right? Like it wasn't all substantive seriousness. Could could you talk about that other part? Yes. There were were times when uh, it descended into the absurd. During the hearings involving uh, J.P. Morgan... This was the media event 
of the day. Uh, they brought special telegraph lines into the Capitol so that uh, reporters could get their stories out quickly. In the committee room, Chairman Fletcher swears in J.P. Morgan, who explains the function of private bankers. Another very this is one of the few times that flash photography or filming was allowed in the hearing room, and it led to the most famous photograph of the hearing, which came after a senator complained that all the media that had turned out to see J.P. Morgan had turned the proceedings into a circus. Well, the, the, one of the promoters for Ringling Brothers Circus picked up on this comment, and he showed up the next day in the hearing room with uh, a woman named Leah Graff, who was one of the circus midgets uh, for Ringling Brothers. And he had the idea that what he termed the shortest woman in the world should sit on the lap of the world's richest man. And so there was Leah Graff <laughs> sitting on the lap of J.P. Morgan. Reading these hearings, do you think we should do this now? You know, there's, there's talk of doing it now, and my concern is how it's done. What I don't want to see is some hearings that are just the show without the substance. And do you feel like that's what we've gotten so far? So far, I think that's what we've gotten. Um, so basically, they call these executives, they yell at them about executive compensation. Exactly. Just do a little public humiliation, and I think that doesn't do anybody any good. We talked about this for a while. I told Michael Perino that I was surprised that President Obama, for all of his communication skills, hasn't really presented the public with a real analysis of what went wrong on Wall Street. The most the president usually says is that the problem is that the stuff that people did on Wall Street that got us into this mess was all perfectly legal. Well, sitting in on this interview with me was NPR's economics correspondent, Adam Davidson, who appears in our program all the time uh, reporting on these issues, and who's actually been looking into what kind of hearings Congress might hold on the banking crisis. I, I talked to someone in Congress today who, who asked that I not say who it was, but um, this person said that they don't want the PCOR hearings as a model. They see the 9-11 Commission as a model. And basically, this person who works in Congress for Congress people said, we don't trust Congress people. If you have hearings inside Congress, it's going to be a circus. Democrats versus Republicans, it's going to be ugly. If it's outside of Congress, that's your only shot. You know, um, I think the other issue that, that is in a lot of people's minds, quite frankly, is look at all the money that's coming from the financial services industry that flows into Congress. Uh, particularly into the committees that would actually hold these hearings. Are these really the people uh, that we want to have? Maybe an independent commission is a better way to go than, than just having a Senate committee do the hearings. So you're saying America needs an independent group of people, not paid by banks and lobbyists, not partisan, open-minded, fearless investigators. I, I think the fewer conflicts we have on that committee, the better. Hey, Ira. Yeah. I think this is a job for us. Well, until our government's hearings get going, if they ever get going, we today would like to make our own modest contribution, our own mini hearing, because we do not want to wait. Our hearing will not last 17 months. We don't have subpoena power to force the most powerful people on Wall Street to come before us and testify. But we do have a question for our hearing, and it's this. There were regulators and there were watchdogs who were supposed to be overseeing the banks and the finance industry to make sure that things wouldn't blow up like they have. 
clearly something went wrong, right? And we asked today, where were the watchmen? And so I call this program to order. From WBEZ Chicago, it is This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Eric Glass. Our hearing today in two parts. We have one investigator who looked at government watchmen and one who looked at the watchmen in the private industry who were supposed to verify the safety of these financial instruments that collapsed. Stay with us. Okay, settle down. Order. Our first investigator we sent out with this assignment, we asked her to take one financial institution that really screwed up and tell us what was the deal with their regulators. Where were the government officials who were supposed to be overseeing that institution? Well, AIG seemed like a good institution to pick. The government has now committed $170 billion, that's billion with a B, into that company, which dwarfs the bailouts of GM and Citibank and Bank of America. Our intrepid investigator, reporter Hannah Jaffe-Walt, first set out to answer what seems like a very simple question. Which government regulator was supposed to be regulating AIG? You and I, we read about the collapse of AIG on a Tuesday morning in the newspaper. But Eric Danalo got a personal phone call Friday night. Danalo is the insurance regulator for New York State, and it was AIG's chief financial officer on his cell phone. Eric, we need to discuss a liquidity problem. I was um, in our family car driving to our cabin in Putnam County. Um, uh, when I heard the amounts, the enormity of it, I was, I was shocked. What, what numbers did you hear that shocked Well, pretty quickly we started hearing numbers in the $40 billion range. That was, this was just even over the phone um, Friday night. Saturday morning, Danalo heads into AIG. At the door, put the BlackBerry away, sir, please. He does and enters this conference room. There's no space at the table. AIG executives, Wall Street CEOs, bankers, advisors, treasury people, they're all there sitting next to a bunch of snacks no one has touched. AIG needs cash, and no one in the room is offering it up. Danalo looks at his deputy, Hampton Finer. Finer looks around the room. I, I think what we thought to ourselves is this is the nightmare of a, this is, this is sort of every insurance supervisor's nightmare. And you were shocked by that? Very shocked, yeah. AIG's collapse was shocking to you and me? Sure. It was shocking to people who held AIG insurance policies? Okay. But these guys, Eric Danalo and Hampton Finer, they are regulators. Regulators. New York State insurance regulators. Guys who talk about AIG in their morning meetings. Guys who go out to AIG companies and do examinations, hold conferences about AIG quarterly reports. These are exactly the guys you hope will not be surprised when the enormous insurance giant based in New York calls its regulator and says, we have no money. I asked Superintendent Danalo about that. You're the New York insurance regulator. Doesn't that make you the guy in charge? We're the regulator for the domestic insurance companies that are domesticated in New York. But the other side was AIG Financial Products Division that really was the part of the company that caused the taxpayer to have to put up the hundreds of billions of dollars that everyone is appropriately upset about. So the healthy part, your part, that bad part, not your part. Well, yes, that's a sort of a, a simple way of putting it, yeah. Where, where was Financial Products based? 
I think it was based in Connecticut, uh, Greenwich, I think, and also in London. A couple minutes with Google and some secretaries, and next day I'm asking Commissioner Thomas Sullivan the same question. You're the insurance regulator of Connecticut, and AIG, huge insurance company, has their financial products group, which was the division that was dealing in all of these exotic derivatives. They were they had an office in Connecticut. So aren't you responsible? No. Uh, financial products is not a an insurance company. Um, but AIG, AIG is an insurance company. Uh, Well, AIG, the holding company, is not an insurance company. Next, I called London. I called other places where AIG had big offices, Japan, China. I called France. AIG Financial Products had a subsidiary in France. I am Corinne Dromer, and I am Deputy Director of Communication. Great. And Dromer, do I spell it? Um, D-R-O-M-E-R. Great. Okay. I'm speaking of the records only. Oh, I, I remember I just asked if I could record our conversation. Um, you can record, of course, but uh, it's really off the record. Okay. Anyway, Dromer just proceeded to tell me, and I have to say the most snooty way possible, obviously the subsidiary was regulated by the French regulator, but the subsidiary didn't mess up the global economy, financial products did. And financial products is a U.S. company. France, not responsible for American mess-ups. AIG has approximately 400 regulators in 150 countries and all 50 states. I think I called 35 of them. Do you know how hard it is to get a regulator to even talk to you? even say the words, not my fault, which, by the way, is what every single one of them told me, which sounds crazy, right? And unsatisfying and frustrating and confusing, but also, unfortunately, mostly legit. AIG was this enormous company, right? Gigantic international operations, one trillion in assets. Those 400 regulators, they were each handed a small chunk of the monster. I asked Eric Dinalo, the New York insurance regulator, about that. What percentage of AIG would you say that you were responsible for looking after? Um, I'd have to check. I don't know the exact percentage of the property and life divisions put together internationally, so I don't want to speculate. Can we find out? Yeah, yeah, we can do that. We'll, Thanks. We'll do, we'll do this took 18 minutes, four men in suits, one computer, two cell phones, and I'm not sure how many calculators to figure out what portion of AIG this one office is in charge of. It's just a little piece of all that. Is that okay? Yeah? Did the numbers add up about the same? What did you get? What? And then he started banging, and then the reporter's going to say, and then he started banging his head on the wall. He did bang his head on the wall. And then? I think on an assets basis, it would be somewhere between 7 and 10%. Does that mean that Connecticut has 5% and Missouri has 3% and... Oh, I'm Alabama sure. has 4%. Yeah, I'm sure if you went through and did an analysis, it would definitely be segmented similarly, actually globally. And that means that all of those states have their own individual regulators. All those countries have their own individual regulators. Maybe the regions have regulators. Yes, that's our system. 
In other words, Eric Dinalo is great at property and life and car and death insurance in New York State. He is not, no offense, Dinalo, a star at airplane leasing, insurance in Bangladesh, real estate in Tokyo. So Dinalo focuses in on his one thing. He's given 7 to 10% of AIG, and he says, I regulated my 7 to 10 very well, thank you. The problem was that all these regulators, with their 5% here and 3% over here, it didn't all add up to 100% of the company. There were a few percentage points missing, parts of the company that nobody had specific jurisdiction over. And that right there became the story of what went wrong with AIG. Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke told Congress, AIG exploited a huge gap in the regulatory system. There was no oversight of the financial products division. The financial products division was the part of the company that bought and sold derivatives, which, as you may have heard, were the complicated financial instruments that nearly sunk AIG. And Bernanke was saying no one was regulating that part of the company. And for months, that story stuck. And then one day, Donald Cohn, also with the Fed, he's telling that story. He's in a congressional hearing, and he's going on about how, unfortunately, no one was watching that part of the company, and no one was watching over the whole thing, the whole of AIG. Senator is dutifully asking follow-ups, and then they get interrupted. A hunched man peeking over his glasses says, um, we were. We were in charge. We screwed up. Senator, may I make a comment? Yeah. Uh, it's time for OTS to raise their hand and say we have some responsibility and accountability here. This entity was deemed a savings loan holding company. We were deemed uh, an acceptable regulator for both U.S. domestic and international operations. There it was, Scott Polakoff, interim director of the Office of Thrift Supervision, OTS, saying, blame us. Thrifts are the same as savings and loans. They're a type of bank. And the OTS regulates thrifts and holding companies that own thrifts. And what Scott Polakoff was saying here is we were the thrift regulator and we were the regulator for the whole company, what's called the lead regulator for all of AIG. We were supposed to fill in all those gaps. And this moment, you can tell watching the hearing that congressmen, they're kind of taken aback actually seem sort of incredulous. Senator Mel Martinez leans in. Uh, Mr. Polinkoff, I wanted, uh, Director Polinkoff, wanted to ask you, uh, I, I was struck by your uh, acknowledgement that perhaps you are the regulator that we've been looking for. I think that uh, we've had assumed that there wasn't one. Polikoff uh, says, yes, I'm the one, sir. And Senator Jeb Henserling from Texas, in a hearing two weeks later, he asks Polikoff, wait, did you say that? I believe I heard in an earlier answer to one of the questions, I believe I heard you say that OTS in 2004 should have stopped the book of business that I think you were alluding to, the CDS and the AIG Securities Lending Commitments. Did I understand you correctly? Yes, sir. So it, it, if you said you should have stopped it in 2004, that implies you could have stopped it in 2004. Is that correct? Yes, sir. So Senator Henserling then says, so it wasn't that you didn't have the authority. It wasn't a lack of resources. It wasn't a lack of experience. You just flat made a mistake? Polakoff says once again, yes, sir. Mm-hmm. 
So here's this guy standing up and saying, yes, me, I'm the one you've been looking for. And everyone kind of goes, you? Who are you? I'm guessing you've never heard of the Office of Thrift Supervision. The OTS is the smallest federal bank regulator, and it's the youngest, 20 years old. I did call the OTS several times. They wouldn't talk to me about AIG. Press guy told me, we've testified before Congress twice. We're not going to go beyond that. So then I started calling the regulation expert people, like Patricia McCoy. She's a law professor at the University of Connecticut, someone who, in her free time, sits down with a pen and paper and does bank autopsies. She'll research failed institutions, look at what went wrong, you know, for fun. So one night, McCoy's making this graph of major bank failures from 07 and 08. It was late at night. I, I, I tend to work late at night. I had filled in the asset sizes, and then I had to do a little research to see who the regulators were. And when I started typing in OTS, 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 I went, what happened at this agency? It's been flying under the radar, and we didn't notice. Which institutions were you seeing and naming, writing OTS in next to them? IndyMac, Washington Mutual, Downey Savings and Loan, NetBank. You might recognize some of those names. For instance, IndyMac, the most expensive bank failure of this crisis, regulated by the OTS. Second most expensive, Bank United, regulated by the OTS. The largest bank ever to fail, Washington Mutual, OTS. Other OTS claims to fame, Countrywide, and AIG. Uh, the reputation of Office of Thrift Supervision was that it was the weakest and laxest, and it was indeed outright friendly to the worst of the non-prime lending. This is William Black. He's a professor at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and he used to work as a lawyer for the Office of Thrift Supervision back in the early 90s. Black says the idea that the OTS could ever go up against AIG, the world's largest insurance company, well... No contest. It's like the super heavyweight of the world going up against the 65-pound, 13-year-old uh, class weakling. That was the OTS. You think about how institutions get their regulators, and you just think they must get assigned one, right? It's like you get assigned a boss, someone tells you who your regulator is. No. If you're a national bank, you have four choices. And maybe you knew this already, but this seemed insane to me. Financial institutions... They choose their regulators. They go regulator shopping. And when AIG was regulator shopping, the OTS looked pretty good. The OTS was actually created because another regulator really messed up, the Federal Home Loan Bank Board. It used to regulate savings and loans until the savings and loan crisis in the late 80s, at which point Congress abolished it and created the OTS. And I talked to several people who worked for that predecessor agency, the Bank Board, and they described that on that day, the day the OTS was created, they left the office, these agency employees, and they walked across the street to a hotel. They turned on the TV, and they sat and watched the first President Bush stand up at a podium and declare, never again will America allow any insured institution to operate without enough money. And then the agency employees watched as the president trashed their agency. 
The press conference ended. They turned off the TV, left the hotel, crossed the street, and went back to work. Pretty soon, someone came by and changed the sign. The Office of Thrift Supervision. So there was this newborn savings and loan regulator. And for a while, it did try to change its ways. A new administration brought in new management. But the OTS was in a tough spot. Savings and loans were dropping like flies. And this was a problem for the OTS, a serious problem, because, and this brings us to an even more insane fact about the way our system of regulation works, federal bank regulators, they're paid by the banks, the people they're supposed to be regulating. They don't get a government budget. The more banks they regulate, the more money they have. So if you're the thrift regulator and hundreds of thrifts just drop dead, that's a problem for you. The OTS was losing revenue and losing revenue, and it was shrinking its staff. So the staff feared that they would lose their jobs. And of course, the bosses feared, why do they need an agency if there are fewer and fewer institutions? So they were desperate to try get banks to convert so they'd be regulated by the Office of Thrift Supervision, and the Office of Thrift Supervision would get the revenue and be able to stay in business. Now, the OTS couldn't hold a press conference and say, hello, we're having a going-out-of-business sale. We'll be the laxest regulator in town. Come on down, sign up. No, instead they went to industry meetings. They talked about the services they offered, how you could do more things. And they did make sure to show up at other kinds of press conferences, make their presence known. Like this one time, a bunch of federal regulators were getting together to announce a campaign to ease regulation, cut through red tape. And James Gilliram, the head of the Office of Thrift Supervision, he shows up for the photo op. Gilliram, just by the way, did not return calls. So Patricia McCoy and William Black, they paint the picture. They were essentially standing in a horseshoe. Uh, behind them is, is uh, a banner that announces the new regulatory relief campaign. And they're all grinning broadly and poised over a stack of the federal regulations to demonstrate their intention to cut through all the federal regulations. The other federal regulators showed up at the press conference with garden shears. And each of them is holding up their instrument uh, ready to clip. Very picturesque. Gillerin showed up with a chainsaw. The OTS guy is holding a chainsaw. Yes, and he's standing in front. Companies got the message. In 2000, General Motors bought a thrift. Next year, so did GE. Three years after that, H&R Block had a thrift. And in 2000, a large insurance conglomerate called AIG opened a small savings and loan in Delaware. It was one one-thousandth of AIG's total balance sheet but that meant AIG could get OTS as its lead regulator, overseeing its entire business, all of it. The holding company regulator, the international regulator. Calling up the world's regulators and asking, which one of you screwed up with AIG? Extremely frustrating. But talking to people about the OTS, I gotta say it's pretty satisfying. Hearing, man, they screwed up. Finally, it's clear-cut, simple answer, easy villain. It's great. Should have stopped there. 
I, I don't care who was the regulator. I don't think they would have caught this. And I hope we don't get uh, diverted to that sideshow. It's, it's getting diverted to sideshows that unfortunately doesn't solve things. This is Mike Roster. He's a veteran regulation lawyer. And he says, sure, you can dump on the OTS if you want, but spread out your anger a little. First of all, save some for Congress. Back in December of 2000, Congress passed legislation that made it incredibly hard to regulate the exact part of AIG that caused all the problems was this law called the Commodity Futures Modernization Act. And it said certain kinds of derivatives, those complicated financial instruments at the heart of AIG's problems, cannot be regulated by the federal agencies that typically watch over that kind of thing. Let me just repeat that. In 2000, Congress decided federal regulators could not regulate the thing that got AIG into trouble. President Clinton signed that act into law. In retrospect, it seems crazy, but at the time, derivatives were still a pretty small market. Politicians just didn't see the risk. Which means, in the end, that even if the OTS had really, really wanted to regulate the hell out of AIG, in theory, as the lead overarching regulator, they could do it, but they would have had to step in and do things that were really the specialized job of this other federal agency, a job Congress had just barred that agency from doing. And Roster says, don't use up all your anger on Congress either. How about all those other firms that did deals with AIG? All firms with regulators, by the way, who thought everything looked great. And they thought everything looked great at AIG, not because the OTS was doing such a bang-up job regulating. No one, Roster says, was paying any attention to the OTS. No. No. Uh, the reality is no. Uh, if you're doing trades with AIG, if you're buying billions of dollars of insurance from them, you're not looking at the OTS. You're actually looking at the Standard Poor's and Moody's ratings. There was AIG getting a triple A rating. So, and those are very smart people at the rating agencies. So, if you want to know which regulator to blame AIG on, it's not the state insurance regulators or London, definitely not France. The Office of Thrift Supervision officially takes the blame, but then we can also point the finger at Congress and the rating agencies, the rating agencies. Now, they were supposed to be looking at each and every bond, each and every derivative to make sure it was safe. The rating agencies are a whole other can of worms, and one we will open in just a minute. Well, I couldn't have said that better myself. Thank you, Han Jaffe Walt. We have can openers at the ready and worms ready for the close-up. And by worms, I don't mean to disparage anybody in our nation's financial industry. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. This American Life from our class. Come to order. Come to order, please. Well, we in our program are hungry for the kind of hearings that they had back in the 1930s after the stock market crash where investigator Ferdinand Pecora made complicated Wall Street shenanigans understandable to everybody. And so, because we don't have those yet, we are holding our own hearings today, right now. And we turn our attention now in these hearings to the credit ratings agencies. When all those uh, financial instruments that brought down our economy, the mortgage-backed securities, the derivatives, all that stuff, were originally issued three rating agencies Standard & Poor's, Moody's, and Fitch gave many of those things their top rating of AAA, meaning very low risk, as safe as can be. 
because of the great ratings, trillions of dollars went into those financial instruments and into the housing market, creating a big bubble, of course. And, of course, the ratings did not turn out to be correct. Standard Poor's, for example, has downgraded roughly half, half of its AAAs, some way down to almost its lowest level, the triple C. The rating agencies just had one job to do, assess how risky these things were. And it seems pretty clear on that job, they failed. So should they take a lot of blame for the global financial crisis? Well, our hearing continues. Here's Alex Bloomberg and David Kestenbaum. Pretty much anyone who issues a bond gets a rating from the rating agencies. Companies, cities, even entire countries get rated. Standard & Poor's gives IBM an A+. The St. Louis County School District R9 gets a AA-. Argentina, B-. There's this old book, Moody's Analysis of Investments, Steam Railroads, 1917. Adirondack Railroad, AAA rating. Aberdeen and Rockfish Railroad, Stay away from that one. They got a B. And so for something like 100 years, this is what the rating agencies have done. Tried to answer one simple and critical question. If I lend someone money, buy one of their bonds, am I going to get my money back? But in the early 1980s, a different kind of bond came along. Today, they go by many names. Mortgage-backed securities, collateralized debt obligations, they all fall under the broad heading of structured finance which is basically that thing you've heard a lot about. Thousands of loans or mortgages pooled together in bundles and then sold as bonds. And their numbers grew. Over the last decade, Wall Street created trillions of dollars of these bonds. And the rating agencies rated them. Frank Rader worked for one of these agencies, Standard & Poor's, in the Structured Finance Division. We were the fastest growing, most profitable group within Standard & Poor's for a while, at least in 2005, 2004, 2005. These days, Frank Rader lives far away from Wall Street. In fact, he's out of cell phone reach entirely. He's clearing himself a little farm in rural Virginia. He does have an office, but it's got a turtle in it. And the reason I wanted to talk to him is that Frank Rader was at Standard & Poor's at the very beginning, when these structured finance products were really taking off. And he was on the team of people that had to figure out the best way to give them letter grades. So let's say you had a mortgage-backed security. It's made up of like 5,000 or so mortgages. Basically, you have to estimate how safe each of those 5,000 people is, how likely they are to default. Rader says when he first started working at Standard & Poor's, they had databases on all kinds of borrowers, ones with good credit, bad credit. And to figure out how likely the borrower is to default, they hired a company, a math company. And the math company made them a computer model based on an actual equation. It's used in uh, code breaking and encryption and areas like that. But there was, there was an actual equation. There is an actual yeah. equation. Oh, yeah. There's an actual econometric equation. Did you ever see the equation? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What did it look like? It looked like a lot of Greek letters. So for the first five years or so that Frank was with Standard & Poor's, things went pretty well, he says. They were taking their historical data about borrower behavior, feeding it into the model, and using the results to issue their ratings. But then in the early 2000s, as we've heard, banks started issuing mortgages to people who wouldn't have gotten them before. People with bad credit scores, putting no money down, and not saying what kind of job they had. There wasn't much history on how this kind of borrower would behave. The equation couldn't really handle them. And that worried Frank. He says they had to basically guess at the default probabilities put magic numbers into the model. Rader says the only way that seemed okay to him was if they started collecting data on these new borrowers to see how they performed over time, so they'd have some real historical data to put into the equation. 
But when he went to his bosses saying, we need a new model, we need to collect more data, this is the answer he got. You've got 94% market share. You're not going to get any more if we build a new model. To them, it was just a tool, and we were making a lot of money with it, so why change it? Did they say that to you specifically in conversations? Look, we have 94% market share. Like, why do we need a better model? Yeah. That was a conversation that I had on several occasions. They should have just said, you know what? We don't have enough information about this new product to, to, give, to ascribe a rating to it. But they couldn't do that. This brings us to witness number two, Jim Finkel. He works at a company called Dynamic Credit, and some of you might remember him from an earlier This American Life episode, The Giant Pool of Money. He was the guy putting together some of these structured finance deals that the rating agencies were rating. He was with Wall Street. And he says what a lot of people say. One reason the rating agencies didn't just say no, put the brakes on everything, it would have cost them money. The rating agencies get paid by the Wall Street investment banks who were creating and selling the bonds. If a rating agency said to one of them, I'm not going to rate this newfangled bond of yours. I don't have enough information. Wall Street had an answer, a very persuasive one. Wall Street said, hey, if you don't, the guy across the street will, and we'll give him all the business. And uh, they just they played the rating agencies off one another, and the rating agencies were basically facing, well, are we ready to give up 40% of our revenues because we're saying we're not ready to rate this kind of new, new product? Um, you know, it would have been financial suicide for them. Does it mean they get rid of their rules altogether? No. But, you know, does it mean they might, you know, make compromises here or there? Maybe. Felicia Grumet, like Jim Finkel, worked on Wall Street at Bear Stearns. We'll call her Witness 2A. She also created these bonds, and she explained how she would try and get the rating she wanted from the rating agencies. For instance, sometimes she'd have a new type of deal she needed to get rated. The rating agencies didn't have a set methodology for rating something new like this, and so her team would propose a structure to try to get as much of the deal triple A as possible. In some ways, we were part of developing the methodology with them because, you know, we'd be trying to argue you, sh- you, should, you, you should look at it this way or, or that way. And, you know, they would go off in, in, on their end in their committees or, or whatever, and they would come back to us and say, well, this is, this is our, you know, our expected, you know, levels of triple A and other bonds in the structure. And, you know, we might say, well, that doesn't work. You have to, you know, you have to go back to the drawing board, so to speak. And we need um, more AAA. We need... You know, did it happen that that specifically? I don't, I don't know. But, you know, that's just, that was part of it. That was part of it. Felicia and I talked for a long time. And she said that eking the most out of every deal, scouring the rules for every loophole, that was just what you did. That was everyone's job on Wall Street. It makes me feel really bad, so I, I actually it's very hard for me to acknowledge. Well, um, why does it make you feel bad? Um, because I knew what I was doing. Yeah. I, kn- I knew I was doing things that, to get around the rules. And, um, I, you know, I wasn't proud of it, but I did it anyway. lot of these securities were being rated AAA, did you think there's no way that's AAA? Absolutely. Again, structured finance manager Jim Finkel. There, there were ratings that we saw that made no sense to us. We knew the rating agency models and metrics, and we could replicate them ourselves. And 
we couldn't make sense of what they were doing. Did, did they uh, did they rate your stuff higher than you thought it should have been rated? Um, I think um, we we marveled at the ratings that all these CDO products got. Um, it was very hard to say that we didn't enjoy the fact that we could get a rating. Um, and to be honest with you, that in and of itself probably prevented us from asking ourselves the very difficult question, uh, what, was that rating just or not? Okay, Dave, we just have one final witness for the prosecution. She comes from the one corner of this whole thing that we haven't heard from, the investor. Mabel Yu, yeah. She worked at Vanguard, which manages $400 billion in bond investments. And every time a new structured finance deal came out, these deals with their AAA bonds would land on her desk and on the desks of hundreds of people like her. And those deals look great to a lot of investors, but they did not look great to Mabel Yu. I got names of the rating agencies, analysts, and I asked them lots of questions. In the beginning, the the, the questions would be a 15 minutes to half an hour, but then it turned into hours and many hours for me to understand the risk profile of the deal. And what did they say to you? Uh, I asked them, okay, AAA is supposed to be minimum risk. What, what AAA really means is even things go bad simultaneously at the same time, our investors would still be protected. That means if the economy goes down, if the housing price goes down, if the interest rates go up, if all of those things happen at the same time, you know, what would happen to our investment? And I could not get a straight answer. Did they say, look, you worry too much? We have a lot of smart people working on this. Many, 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 many times. I felt so dumb many, many, many times. Yep. And they asked me that, you know, um, in many ways, they asked me, don't worry about it, have a life, you know. Instead of staying up so late and repairing all those hours of questions for them, just go and enjoy my life. I worry too much. Almost every day. <laughs> Almost every day? Yes. 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 What, what, what was, if you look back, what was the thing that was missed? Well, I, I wouldn't say anything was missed. And here, at long last, is the defendant, or at least an employee of the defendant, Tom Warwick. He actually used to work for Frank Rader, the guy on the farm. With the turtle. Um, Warwick has been at Standard & Poor's for over 15 years. He's helped rate hundreds of mortgage-backed securities. And we asked him about Frank Rader's concerns, that mortgages were being given out to a new type of borrower with low credit scores and little documentation. Never before in the, you know, in the, in the history of the country, dating back to the Great Depression, have we had the type of nationwide declines in home prices and the associated uh, default levels. I mean, there are people who would say, you know, these were loans being out to people who didn't even have to prove they had jobs. We had no data on how these loans were going to perform. How, how could you rate these things? It's important to understand... Um, 
And the riskier we believed the loan was, the more loss reserves needed to be incorporated into the transaction for us to rate a transaction AAA. But, but there are people who would say you had no data to know what the real risk of those people defaulting was. How could you go and rate something where you didn't have any data on how these loans were going to perform? Well, we had we had we had lots of data. We had we had we had um, years worth of data as to as to how borrowers perform over time. Um, for for these loans, for people who who didn't have to prove they had a job, you had lots of data for that. Um, we are able to through our through our analytical process, we're able to develop assumptions around what we believe the future will be like. For these, for these particular borrowers. Let's examine that last sentence. We are able to develop assumptions around what the future will be like for these particular borrowers. I think that's one frustration many people have. Those are not the words people are looking for. The words people are looking for are these. I'm sorry, we were wrong. Moody's declined our request for interviews, but the president of Standard & Poor's, Devin Sharma, did agree to speak with us. Here's the closest he came to admitting that his company screwed up. Some of our mortgage-related securities um, uh, experienced uh, more st- uh, severe downgrades than we have historically uh, experienced, and that's been a disappointment. I think, honestly, as a listener out there, this is the thing that is frustrating, is that I've heard this a lot, that nobody could have seen this coming, nobody could have seen this coming. More than anybody else, that is your job, right? That's the, it's, it's, the, it's the investment bank's job to say, this is going to be great it's your job to say, you know what, here's how, the, here's how things could go bad. Our analysts are very smart people, and, and they too observe that th- there was too much of a bubble and we need to do something about it. And they made changes to our methodology and criteria starting in 2006. Now, hindsight, you know, it's like they didn't make enough of a severe change as we have now experienced. But it's not that they missed it. They missed the severity of it. Some of you may detect the delicate verbal parsing of a man who, before our 20-minute interview, had probably undergone many hours of legal counseling. The credit rating agencies are, of course, being sued. And they don't want to say anything that can be used against them in court. And apparently, listen, we really screwed up, we're very sorry, can be used against you in court. As a result, we'd ask a question and we'd get a talking point in response. And so we find ourselves in a strange position. You've had so many conversations over beer, over coffee, over the phone, with former and current rating agency employees who didn't wish to go on tape. We've read articles. We've sat through panel discussions. And we think we can explain their point of view more clearly than any of their official spokespeople. Wow, we're going to try. Right. So, Alex, you want to be the rating agency? I'll be the Pitbull reporter. All right. Bring it on, man. All right. Where to start? How about this? Look. When you rate something AAA, it's supposed to be safe. It's supposed to be really safe. It's supposed to be so safe that the rating really shouldn't change. And yet nearly half, one half of the securities you rated AAA during the bubble, they've been downgraded. Explain that. Okay, those letter grades, the AAAs and BBBs, those are just our best estimate. They're not a buy or sell recommendation. Investors just weren't using our ratings properly. They should have been more like Mabel Yu, asking more questions. They should have come up with their own conclusions. Besides, it's smart to change the ratings. The economy has fallen off a cliff. You want me to make sure my ratings never go down? Fine, I'll rate everything triple C. Oh, and by the way, we publish all our models on the internet. You could see how we came up with rating all along if you wanted to. Yeah, but what about the fact that you were paid by the people whose securities you were rating? Sir, the notion that someone could 
buy a rating from us, you offend me. Look, someone has to pay us. It's either the issuers or the buyers. There are conflicts of interest either way. We know that and we deal with it. The vast majority of our ratings held up. We rate trillions of dollars of all kinds of bonds. Most of them have behaved exactly as we expected them to. Mortgage-related bonds are a small part of what we do. And anyway, it's totally unfair to put all of this on us. Wall Street and mortgage lenders lied to us. Investors got lazy and bought this stuff without doing their own due diligence. You want to know what I think? I think we are a convenient scapegoat and we're being used by you and everybody else to avoid examining their own mistakes. <laughs> are you done? Yeah, uh, it actually felt good to get that off my chest. <sighs> I'm back now. Okay, because there's something else we need to talk about, which is the backstory. Right, the backstory. How did these companies go from publishing their little railroad guides in 1917 to being at the center of a global financial meltdown? To find the answer, we went to talk to a professor at NYU named Larry White. And when we say professor, we mean the whole package. Gray, slightly unkempt hair, a novelty tie featuring NASDAQ ticker symbols. And in one of the many books in his office, Larry White is sure is the name of the one man who planted the seeds of our current crisis. <sighs> Ah, the controller and... Da, 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 da. Control of the currency. Is this Gene White's book? JFT O'Connor. Controller 33 to 38. He's, he's your man. JFT O'Connor. He's your man. Our man JFT O'Connor was Franklin Delano Roosevelt's comptroller of the currency at the height of the Great Depression. During the Depression, it was O'Connor's job to fix the banking system. And he did what seemed like a totally reasonable and prudent thing to try to keep the banks from taking too many risks. In 1936, the controller of the currency tells the banks that they cannot hold bonds that are below investment grade. Investment grade as determined by whom? By a handful of rating agencies. Perfectly good uh, uh, reasoning, uh, certainly a sensible goal. Uh, but what it did was send us down this road of uh, vesting the judgments of these handful of rating agencies with the force of law. This, says Professor White, was a pivotal moment because now the rating agency's little letter grades took on a very special meaning. Whereas before the rating was just a tool for investors to use, now the rating became a requirement. And things didn't just end there. In 1975, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, passed a rule saying financial institutions couldn't rely on the ratings of just any rating agency, but only on specially designated ones. For many years, that meant just three, Moody's, Standard & Poor's, and Fitch. States jumped on the bandwagon and started requiring ratings for pension fund investments and for insurance companies. Even the financial industry got involved and wrote ratings requirements into its own deals. And so these three companies and their letter grades became the foundation for trillions of dollars of investments. It was as if, without fully realizing it, the world had wired the global economy with explosives, and the ratings were the fuse. And then, on July 10, 2007, the first fuses got lit. Moody's saw the light and downgraded hundreds of subprime bonds. Standard & Poor's said it would, too. In a press release issued not very long ago, Moody says it has downgraded 399 Residential mortgage-backed securities placed an additional 32 under review for possible downgrade. These were all originally... As it was happening on TV, it didn't seem like that big a deal. This, after all, was the summer of 07. The Dow was near its all-time high. The recession had not yet begun. 
This announcement by Moody's got a mention in the business section of the New York Times, but the front page featured the headline, Can't sell your home? Maybe it's priced too low. Jerry Fonz was inside Moody's at the time. Really, internally, it was, you know, not much hay was made of it. It was just kind of, you know, they tried to say, well, you know, the model shows these are a little weak, and so we, we see now there's some deterioration here, so we're going to lower them. It was, it was done very matter-of-factly. But, um, you know, what they couldn't see is what the wheels were really coming off big time. I, I do kind of remember what I call the chainsaw massacre. Jim Finkel, as you can hear, saw the downgrades a little differently. Finkel, remember, is the Wall Street structured finance guy. He'd spent the last few years creating and managing and investing his own money in CDOs, which were made up of lots of bonds, many of which were now being downgraded. He could see things were going to spread. And watching those ratings downgrades, Jim said the room was silent. The phones weren't ringing. Everyone was watching the same thing. I remember it being a hot summer day. I remember sitting in the office, watching the screens and watching um, the way the screens work, the individual securities being downgraded um, uh, come over line by line. You, you, you forgot how many securities there were out there, let alone how, how many could get downgraded all in one day. And it was just wave after wave after wave of bad information, and it's like body blows. I just felt hollow and helpless. Um, and it was actually quite hard to absorb uh, the implication. We, we knew there was an implication to it, but we actually were having a hard time conceptualizing the magnitude uh, of the implication of those ratings and how systemic this 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 would roll out to be. So the world shaking under your feet wasn't really quite um, quite the metaphor I'd use. It was more some kind of um, whispering death wind blowing through the room. Over the next year and a half, that death wind grew louder. Those first downgrades were followed by more downgrades of higher and higher rated bonds. And remember, a lot of financial institutions were required by law to hold bonds that were above a certain rating. Now they had to sell. And because they were all selling at the same time, prices dropped. These dropping prices destabilized the banks which held these bonds. Citibank, Merrill Lynch, Lehman Brothers. Eventually, it made its way to AIG. Back, everybody. We uh, have more news, of course, on AIG. Moody's is now downgraded. AIG as well. Want to give you the details there. Those downgrades will have the effect of triggering certain things uh, for AIG. Ratings have that will force gained a power a that they really didn't want to have. Jerry Fonz, the former manager at Moody's. Whether or not you really are a single A, Moody says you are, you are. And as soon as they downgrade you, you're going to be bankrupt. Right. And, and, the, and so basically, the, the ratings agencies, you guys were given all this power that all of a sudden you didn't even, in the beginning, you didn't even know that you were, it sort of came later. You started the ratings and then all of a sudden your rating has this, this, this market force that if you change it, it's much more than just changing the rating on a single company. It, it, the whole system collapses, basically. That's right. What could be done in the future? Um, no, I, I, think, I think we have to rethink the whole business from, from ground up. I think it's, I think it's broken. I think the, the way people have relied on ratings um, has contributed to their downfall. We've just got to um, move away from this dependence on two 
or three big companies to do all your work for you. The rating agencies on their own certainly didn't cause all our economic problems. There's plenty of blame to go around for that. But on the way up, they helped inflate the housing bubble. And on the way down, they were sometimes the ones holding the pin to pop it. There are all kinds of proposals on the table for how, in Jerry Fonz's word, to rethink the whole business. One idea is that bonds should get a kind of skeptical second opinion from a rating agency paid by investors. Another would set up a system to reward agencies that get the ratings right. Another idea, get ratings out of regulations completely. The two biggest rating agencies, by the way, Moody's and Standard & Poor's, would be fine with that, would be willing to give up their special legal status. The world may see them as watchmen, the people who could have stopped this global crisis. But they don't see themselves that way, or at least they don't want to anymore. It's nice to get all the business. It's not so nice to get all the blame. Alex Bloomberg is one of the producers of our show. David Kestenbaum is a correspondent for NPR News. And if you like what you heard today, David and Alex and Hannah, actually, in fact, do a blog and a thrice-weekly podcast that is a co-production between our program and NPR News called Planet Money, www.npr.org slash money. Thanks today to Frederick Vigneron of Asset Backed Consulting and Uri Berliner and Adam Davidson. Archival sound courtesy of the WPA Film Library. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Support for This American Life is provided by Kashi. Tips on healthy snacking, creating a green kitchen, natural recipes, and more at kashi.com. Kashi, seven whole grains on a mission. And by The Economist, covering news and ideas from around the world and the connections between them, The Economist, on newsstands, in bookstores, and at economist.com. And by Mini, with the 37 miles per gallon Mini Cooper with go-kart handling. Learn more at miniusa.com slash info. WBEZ Management Oversight for our program by our boss, Mr. Tori Malatia, who just got back from his vacation in Greece. He had trouble getting around. He says the signage was really weird. It looked like a lot of Greek letters. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. PRI. Public Radio International.